Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integrations. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. The team behind Gage believes in using web technology to test web applications. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. G'day, you're listening to JS Party, which is a weekly celebration of everything JavaScript. I'm Suze Hinton, I'm your host for this episode, and I'm very lucky to be joined by some fantastic panelists. So let's say hello to all of them. First, we have Cable. Hey, Cable, how's this going? Going good. Excited to talk about failure. Yeah. And we also have Nick to hopefully share some stories with us today. Welcome back, Nick. Hello, I'm an excellent failure. <laughs> and I caught up with you two recently at JSConf, which was really, really fun. I think I met both of you in real life for the first time as well. Yeah. Yep. It was super fun. And last but not least, we also have Jared on the show. It's also really cool to have you on this episode too. I think that you have a really cool story about our Twitter account to share, right? Well, I don't know if cool is the word, but I think fail is definitely the word. Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as mentioned just then, we are talking about JavaScript fails for the topic for this episode. So if you are listening in on the live stream and you're in our community Slack, um, please share some stories and we would love to be able to either have you call in or you can also um, have the stories read out by us. And if you aren't in the community Slack or the live stream, what are you doing? You should totally come in. You'll be able to find the link, um, the different links on our website in order to check that out. So uh, without further ado, let's get started about some JavaScript failures and gotchas. Um, I'm seeing that Cable had a weird time date passing issue with my home country by the sounds of it. Do you want to tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? Sure. I mean, it's it's not that crazy, but it's kind of in that theme of like, I've been doing this how long and I still F this up. Um, but so yeah, I have a client right now that's based in Australia. And I don't know if y'all know, but they do their days and months backwards over there. What? Uh, so it's not backwards. It's different. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think it it probably actually makes more sense. But um, beyond that, uh, it's different from how things mm -hmm. are in the U.S. And it's different from how Moment parses things by default. Actually, I I don't know if that's true 
does moment change how its default parsing is based on the time zone of your computer? Because that would be kind of cool if it did that. But I think there are default configurations. And as usual, it tends to be biased towards um, the more sort of US American centric way of doing things, which which you definitely encounter a lot, surprisingly, when you don't when you're not a developer in the US. But anyway, that is a tangent. <laughs> yeah. But so anyway, um, I have developing the site. Um, I'm doing it statically and had a bunch of dummy data that I was dumping in and uh, dumped it all in and couldn't figure out why. Uh, it, like it would display fine because I was just displaying the data straight up. But then I try to do sorting or computations by it and it would just like totally shatter and break down and not work. And eventually traced it to the fact that, you know, to sort it, I took it from these strings of dates and I was parse it by moment and then like do sorting with moment. Um, but everything with a day above 12 would parse as a, you know, invalid date because moment was assuming that those were the months and it would, it would just <laughs> kind of blow up. And so eventually what I ended up doing is like essentially building a wrapper around everything that I did time-wise so that, you know, you always parse it in through these wrapper methods. You always put it out through these wrapper methods. Um, and it's fine. I probably could have changed the con default config too, but that was too smart for me. <laughs> I feel like there's a deep seated fear in the development community to do with just time zones, dates in general. And I feel that JavaScript, the language itself has already set us up to fail. And you know, the, the reason why things like moment and date functions are such popular libraries is that yeah. you really do have very scant sort of support for doing anything um, productive with dates in JavaScript. Yeah, time is terrible. <laughs> it's really <laughs> terrible. And there's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I was reading some article that was talking about building um, a calendar or something like that. And like, it's this type of thing that you think is going to be relatively straightforward, but there are so many edge cases around time zones. Mm. Um, and even now, like Google calendars is pretty darn good, but if I'm traveling and moving around or sending invites to people that are in different time zones or, or worse of all, like I'm trying to schedule something for something in one time zone, but I'm scheduling it for somebody who's currently in a different time zone, but will be in my time zone when they get here. Like, <laughs> it's the most confused I had, like I was scheduling <laughs> interviews for one of these conferences and yeah. like, I'm the conference was going to be in Pacific time. I'm sending out these invitations or using Calendly or whatever folks are signing up. They're overseas or they're in on the East coast. And there was so much confusion over what time did I sign up for? When am I supposed to be here? That sounds like a nightmare. I saw a tweet a, a little while back. I wish I could find it to, uh, to attribute it correctly, but it, it said something along the lines of, I was really excited for uh, humans to travel to Mars until I realized the impact it would have on date parsing and time zones. <laughs> 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 that's really good uh, the, uh, there's also a comment in uh, our slack which is from Rusba saying that I recently learned of Julian format which is you have your four digits for the year and then you just have the amount of days in the year so they said that today would be 2018 256 because we're, we're at our 256th day or 257th day so interesting Time is really hard, especially when you're trying to organize a live show. Maybe, Suze, you can talk about how you do it with Twitch and stuff. But for instance, this show, the question is always, you don't want to be like so USA centric, even though, you know, we are in the USA. And so the timing of the actual recording kind of has to be around the people who are going to be on the show. 
That being said, we want, you know, as many people as possible to listen live. And we want to message to them in a way that's like, you know, comes to them as opposed to like come to us. And so um, it's always difficult. Like when do you, how do you say, you know, join us, you know, on a Twitter thing that's going to be like tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern. Well, if you just say 12 p.m. Eastern, which would be the wrong time anyways, uh, you'd show up an hour uh, early. Now, if you said 1 p.m. Eastern, <laughs> which is our normal time, then people will have to translate it right into their own time zone. And so uh, there is a cool website called time.is, which will take a Unix timestamp, which is like what the offset in milliseconds since January 1st, 1970 or something like that. And you can pass it into that and it will just, um, you know, use JavaScript, I assume, or locales or whatever in order to translate into every viewer's local times. And so that's what we used to share. Yeah, that's super smart. I know that there are some Twitch extensions you can use, um, which you can install as like little panels at the bottom of your stream. And it basically has a countdown, <laughs> um, which right. I think is how Twitch has gotten around it. And I mean, I ran into this when, you know, two years ago, I started my Twitch stream and I lived in New York. And so I was like, cool, 11 a.m. sounds like a pretty chill time to stream on a Sunday. I get a sleep in, et cetera, et cetera. And then jokes on me, I moved to Seattle three months ago and now I have to do it at 8 a.m. Because oh, no. just because I moved doesn't mean that everyone's expecting me to all of a sudden start streaming like three hours later. And so that has been a struggle, but also I've had to send out, like I had to send out an online survey to all of my viewers asking them if I was to change the time to be later in the day, would that actually literally prevent you from watching? Um, just to be able to see, because even just changing it by one hour can mean that all of a sudden someone was watching while preparing dinner, for example, which is a thing for a couple of people. And mm. then they, they are now eating with their family during the exact hour I start. And so I have to be aware that not everyone is getting up at 8 a.m. to watch my stream and that most people are actually watching from totally different time zones. And so me just rolling it forward one hour monumentally affects everybody. And when I start my stream, I also say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are around the world. So it's actually really, really kind of nice and inclusive, but you yeah. always have to be aware of that. Wow, that kind of stinks that you have to do it at 8 a.m. Does that change your your mood, your content, your the, the quality of the streams? <laughs> I'm a little more sleepy, but I'm I'm an early bird anyway. It's just that sometimes I'm hangry because I didn't have time to make breakfast. So, yeah. Mm. So what was the overall uh, consensus? Are you okay to move it? Or are you stuck at 8 a.m.? Uh, I think I'm going to move it to 9 a.m. And I honestly think that'll be the sweet spot because then I have the rest of the Sunday to sort of, you know, do whatever I want after the stream. Um, but I have to sort of be very careful about announcing that. And then I think I'm going to install a panel that uses JavaScript to take a timestamp to do the countdown from now on too. I think that's actually what I've learned from this chat. <laughs> there you go. Makes me wonder a little bit about like, so we in the, the US and most of the world, we have this idea of time zones where we're basically trying to make, you know, a particular time mean about the same thing wherever you are. Um, but you could look at a place like China, which as I understand it has one time zone for all of China. And it's just that the times that makes coordination a lot easier, but then what a particular time means is very different depending on where you are in the country. It's so true. And I know that even during different parts of the year, I know that some countries just sort of stop working for weeks at a time as well. And so you're usually expecting them to be doing their regular thing or attending meetings and all of a sudden they just kind of disappear because from a cultural perspective, Time is, as you said, a very different thing. All this makes me want to move to a remote place in Montana and just become a farmer or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seems like a, a simpler life. 
Yeah. I periodically think about leaving the tech industry and then I realize I'm in Silicon Valley. If I left the tech industry, I wouldn't be able to afford to live. Mm, (laughs) That's so true. I feel like every JavaScript fail I've had has made me want to become a farmer in Montana. (laughs) 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 I definitely relate to that a lot. Okay. Well, you have another one. You're talking about metrics counting. Oh God. Uh, So this is not JavaScript, but this is sort of a, a highlight of like how bad this stuff can get and lessons learned. So um, back at one of the, I, I started a couple startups years ago and there was a time period we were applying, we were trying to get VC funding. So we were fundraising and doing a bunch of stuff. And if you're ever fundraising, you need lots of metrics of how your site is doing or your application or whatever. How is it growing? How is this? How is that? And we hadn't totally formalized all of our metrics, partly because we were still learning what people wanted and what was useful. Um, and I was the the CTO, so I had direct access to the data and I'd get requests from my co-founder, sometimes at odd times, like, I need this because these people need this or whatever. Like, can you, you know, compute these metrics or whatever? Um, and so I was uh, often pulling metrics at random times of day. And as we started to get an idea of what were the metrics that we wanted to record all the time, we would formalize it into rather than me, you know, going and writing some queries on, um, it was either, I would just sort of hand do that on the rails console or on the, um, on a SQL console or something, you know, we'd actually codify it in code and put it into a regular report. Um, so at some point I was doing that and discovered that there had been an error in some of the data that I had pulled previously, like I'd forgotten, I think we were doing, I'd forgotten one step of filtering or something like that. And so we had reported data that was metrics that were better than our actual metrics to people that we were raising money from, uh, which, you know, you're, when something like that happens and you just, you see it and you like run the numbers again and you run the numbers again and they're all coming, they're coming out. And then you can see like, how did that thing happen? Like your gut just draw or you're like, uh, gut comes up oh in your throat no. and all these things. Um, so, you know, what we had to do was essentially like send out info, like we were wrong. Sorry. <laughs> like these are the corrected <laughs> numbers. Uh, Sorry about that. It, in a, you Oops. know, potentially canned that round of fundraising for us, did all sorts of terrible, like it was a very rough time, um, along many d- dimensions. Uh, so, uh, it, couple few different lessons coming from that one is that like your metrics code should be treated like your production code in that you should never be running it straight from the console without it being reviewed right you should code it you should run tests have tests you should have code review um doesn't matter how early that is like that stuff is important too um but yeah that was definitely like probably one of the biggest tech fails i've had it's so embarrassing when you know that you have to tell people to, you're like, well, this is one we can't sweep under the rug. So I admire you for, for having to do that communication afterwards. Yeah, it was terrible. But like, yeah, you can't, because you, what, what else are you going to do, right? Like you could try to lie about it, but that's only going to make things worse. Yeah, exactly. We've seen companies that have done that. It's not so good. That just made me think of another failure yeah. story. Dog on it. Every, the more we talk, the more fails I'm, I'm having over here. Go ahead, Nick. I'm just piling them up. Uh, you want me to talk about my fails? Yeah, I uh, I see a classic one that you'd like to share, which I think is about asynchronous things in loops. Yeah, this uh, actually just happened to me 
uh, not too long ago and just a, a few months ago, I think. And it's <laughs> doing asynchronous things inside of loops uh, doesn't always mean that things are going to run as you would expect them because if you're not capturing that, then uh, the, the results of those asynchronous things. Um, and in my specific case, this was on a pull request that I made to uh, Code Sandbox. And I was adding in the ability to basically go in and find the type definition files for uh, code if it exists from Unpackage or from wherever it's pulling that data from. And uh, the, the code that was actually doing that was doing that for every single file and then returning. But because I was doing an async fetch of those files inside of a, a for loop and not actually capturing the promises that were being returned from that and then waiting on that, the method would just immediately return and it would result in the code thinking that it had successfully loaded all of the files, but then them not actually being there. So then the editor would show you that it, it has no idea what module you're trying to import because it can't find it. And it was kind of an intermittent bug for a while. And it took a while because it's it's not something that I, I would have thought because it's it's something that's kind of hidden in the new uh, syntactic sugar of the language with like async await and all of that. I wasn't thinking about returning the the promise from each one of those. So I had to go in and change it to, um, instead of doing a for each loop, do a map and then return the promise and then await the promise.all of that array of promises before the function would actually return so that it would hold up the rest of the parsing until everything was actually there. That's so tricky because it seems like one of those times where because it's happening intermittently and the error doesn't seem to point exactly at what's going on, like, yeah, that must have puzzled you for a while. It did. And I like the code is trying to do some some caching of, of those files. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I'm like caching invalid things and I need to clear that. So I was going through and having to clear that with the dev tools every time and trying to figure it out. And it just it led to a lot of headache that ended up just being something really simple. Yeah, I, I was talking about this on Twitter just recently with um, with the online sort of development community where whenever there's a bug, you always overcomplicate it and assume that it's this really complex thing that's happening, whereas a lot of the time it falls back down to a very simple issue. Async stuff on the web is the source of so many issues because like, especially you're, you're in a development environment, you're at work or something like that, like you're either fetching things from local or over a very fast network. And so you get these race conditions where most of the time it will work because your network is fast and everything comes back before you get on to whatever the, the thing that's going to depend on it is, uh, even though you're not waiting for it. And then you try to do it someplace with a slower network or something funky happens and just one comes back slow or out of order or what have you. And it's just like, where did that come from? Yeah, that also is a, a testament to actually testing with um, the network latency uh, in the dev tools or just testing on a slow network, not just relying on straight testing localhost because it's not always a, a true representation of what might actually be in production. Jared, do you want to tell a story? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, <laughs> this is only JS related insofar as it's JS party related. Um, and it was a very recent fail. In fact, it still hurts. But uh, it all ended well, so I'll, I'll spoiler it right there. So I was listening to Faraz's uh, interview with the Beaker crew uh, recently. And, you know, when you're listening to a live stream and you're just kind of participating, you're kind of working, you're kind of just dinking around. Well, I was dinking around and I 
was on the JS Party FM Twitter handle because I tweeted out the live show or something like that. And uh, I thought, oh, the the description of the show and the bio, the Twitter bio is outdated. I'll just go in there and I'll fix that up. And then I noticed that, uh, you know, there's some extra fields there, like location and birth date and all these things. And uh, I thought, you know, what would be cute is there was no birth date on the, on the handle. I thought it would be kind of cool if we set the birth date of the Twitter handle to the day that the first episode of JS Party aired. Then it would just be like representative of at least how long the show's been around, kind of show a born on date kind of thing, which was just a couple of years back, right? It was uh, 2017, last year, beginning of last year. And so I, <laughs> I'm editing the Twitter bio and I sent the birth date to uh, sometime in 2017. And then I saved it. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> you know where this is going? Yeah. And Twitter said, oh, your account is a suspended because you're too young to use Twitter. <laughs> and they like just locked it out. And I'm sitting there Boom. thinking, what the what? Now, when they suspend an account, it's not just you can't tweet or you can't sign in. It, it Like 404s. And I'm thinking that was the dumbest thing I could have possibly done. <laughs> trying to be cute. Now this show is completely and this handle is completely gone. At 404s, you can't at mention it, blah, blah, blah. This is one of the primary ways that we communicate with our listeners. And the only recourse was I could fill out a form that like <laughs> basically begging Twitter to, to put the count back into good status. Um, this form was, was silly. And I had to upload a image of my driver's license <laughs> to prove <laughs> <laughs> that I'm of age. Oh, no. Because <laughs> apparently they just... They just expect people to tell the truth about their birth date. Like if I was five and I wanted a Twitter account, I'd just lie about my age. Or if I was 12, I think 13 is the cutoff. And then anyways, you fill out this form. And one thing it says on the form is this is your only chance to submit this form. And, if, <gasps> and yeah. we'll get, we have a high demand for, you know, whatever. There's a long queue. We'll get back to you, whatever. And if we, if we say no, like you're done. Oh. And I'm sitting here thinking, I don't have the high, highest set of confidence in Twitter's <laughs> management and, you know, uh, abuse teams right now. There's no chance of ever getting this account back. I thought it was just gone. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why was I such an idiot to think that this would be funny? And uh, so I submitted the form. I had to upload my driver's license. And, you know, to Twitter's uh, props to Twitter because it was restored within five or six hours. And uh, everything went back to being normal. But it was a total fail. I felt like an idiot. I remember I was driving to the gym uh, after that show thinking... Like that was just about the stupidest thing I could have done today. Kind of ruined the afternoon. Um, what was scary a little bit is when they restored the account, they didn't restore the followers. So I think we have 700 something followers and, and you know, you don't want to have to rebuild that. Like it's not a huge number, but it's a start. And they were, they, they, I got the email. I'm like, yes, account restored. And I went and checked it. It said, it said zero followers and zero tweets or something. So I, I suspect some kind of cash or CDN thing hadn't updated yet, but now I thought they just started us over from, uh, from scratch, but nonetheless, Everything was back to normal, and a couple hours later, the follower count showed up and everything, and all was well. But man, that was sure a fail, and it's it's very fresh. It was last week. Oh, it was last week? Yeah, well, whenever so Frost's right show Right during was. that episode, right? Yeah, yeah right during uh, the Thursday afternoon <laughs> Frost show. Yep. <laughs> you, know, you know what? This is also props to Twitter, though. They have their time and date passing correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, the year's the easy part, right? Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. true. Usually the year is pretty solid. Everyone's on the... Uh, are we on the Gregorian calendar? What calendar system do we use in the West? Yeah. Gregorian? Gregorian. Yes. Yeah. So, like, generally, we're not swapping calendar systems. 
just like ways of expressing the order of things. Thanks for sharing that because I realized that that is that would have felt quite humiliating. So I'm actually like, yeah, props to you, Jared, for sharing that. That's awesome. I didn't even know this happened until you told the story. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that dire. That's that's funny. Yeah, I played it. I mean, I did post it into the the changelog Slack, but I just kind of you know I played it off as as no big deal. But I was definitely sweating bullets because it's just such a stupid <laughs> thing to lose a count over. You know, there's just no reason for it. So, uh, lesson learned is don't try to be cute uh, with your <laughs> with your the birth date on your Twitter accounts. Um, they will suspend you, and you may or may not get back on. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. So I have a story uh, of when I was first learning JavaScript and I didn't know that different browsers were running different um, versions of JavaScript. So this was pretty early uh, in, I guess, the game. Not super early, I think it was 2011. So I don't know if anyone else has run into stuff like this, but I believe that in um, ECMAScript version three versus version five, um, the pass integer function is slightly different in what it does implicitly, unless you're super explicit about what base um, you want to pass your integer into. So this, this is, does this sound familiar to anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I was doing was I ended up implementing a pretty nasty production bug because I was passing um, strings that were numbers into integers, and I was just assuming that it would do base 10 every single time. And mm -hmm. I ended up passing integers that had a leading zero in front of it. And in ES3, um, which was still being run by certain versions of Internet Explorer at the time that we were supporting um, as part of our product, uh, it was doing it into, um, I think base eight instead. Um, that's what it will do if it discovers like a zero in front of the actual rest of the digits at the front. And so we were just like, why is this number or this, this whole like piece of functionality on the website randomly failing in this one browser, but it's just not super apparently obvious. And so it took a couple of developers going through the feature that I had released for them to spot it, which was not spotted at code review either, which was kind of scary. So yeah, it's mm. amazing how just that one little leading zero and, and an implicit conversion can just like be so invisible. And that was the first time that I learned like the power of like, you know, destruction that you can have uh, just with a simple thing in JavaScript, because I was very, very new to the language at the time. 
Somewhat related, I think the second argument to parsent is how I learned the word radix because I had no idea what it meant. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the heck is a radix? I guess I'll just pass 10 every single time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got really strict about it. And I think that even when I moved on to my next job and um, we weren't supporting that version of the browser anymore, like I remember in my first pull request, people were like, you don't have to put the 10. It's okay. And I'm like, no, I do. I don't want this ever happening again. <laughs> yeah. Once bitten. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that type of like pedantic little thing is a huge part of the growth from like junior developer into more advanced. Like we were talking earlier or on the pre-party call about um, pattern recognition, but attention to detail is a huge one. Like yes. it's fascinating how many bugs I end up finding when I'm working with, you know, helping somebody debug where the, the answer ended up being, I pedantically checked every single line. <laughs> Right. And every, every <laughs> character. Yeah, exactly. I validated my, you know, I, what do I assume is happening here? Okay. I'm going to validate every single one of those assumptions one by one by one. I'm going to look at exactly what you wrote, not glance at it. Oh, you know, there's a, you used an A in the spelling here and an E in the spelling there, you know, things, random things like that. But that is like a rite of passage is like discovering that to be in this job, you have to be anal retentive at least about at least one thing. Mm. I totally agree. I think that I'd been doing HTML and CSS like, you know, in, in a professional stance for at least seven or eight years before, um, you know, I landed a job where it was very heavily JavaScript driven stack. And so that was very new to me because previously um, I'd been working for agencies creating websites for clients and clients didn't usually want to pay for the JavaScript bells and whistles that, you know, that's how they saw it. And so it took a really long time for me to start learning JavaScript. And I think that I was just so overconfident because I was like, oh, well, I know this HTML and CSS thing, how hard cause it's, could this JavaScript thing be? And I think that's when I realized like, hey, Suze, you should really sit down and learn this language and stop just spraying lines of code around thinking that it's fine. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I definitely call out that story specifically as that rite of passage because that's when I started really taking the language a little bit more seriously when it comes to growth and, and knowing how to wield it in a responsible manner. Yeah, I really like that the tooling has gotten better too. With, with things like Prettier, there's a lot less, a lot fewer things that you need to be pedantic about because the tool can do that for you. Um, but how do you feel about the things that the tool still doesn't handle? Do you feel like uh, it's you're just a jerk for, for calling that out? Or... Um, like, like if the tool's not catching it, should you care? I guess is where I always fall. I think that the gap between like the, what the tool can do and what we do is really why we still have a job. <laughs> <True. You> know, <laughs> For now. You know, it, it's sort of like, well, okay, so the tool can, can do all of this static analysis. Um, and then we have to do the things where, you know, like machines don't think like humans at all. And so, you know, it, it crosses over into us being intentional with what each line actually does. And I think that that like what I'd like to see is for that sort of gap to close a little bit, because, you know, we do still as developers do a lot of drudgery as part of our tasks because the computer or we're just not quite clever enough yet to make the computer understand that intent, if that makes sense. And so there is still a lot of boilerplate that we can't necessarily always automate and things like that. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, but um, 
I think that we definitely don't run into those sort of like radix passing stuff that we used to because we've gotten a lot better with our tools. I think there's two pieces to that question. So one, there's sort of the human factor of what are the standards that we as a team are going to adopt to make our code consistent and readable and understand. Um, And there, I feel like the level of pedanticism should be something that you kind of agree on. It's really obnoxious if there's one person who's way more pedantic than everyone else. Um, And in that case, like even if that you're the person, you should, probably dial it back or convince the others why that's an important thing um, rather than just continuing to be that guy or that girl. Um, (laughs) But then the other piece of it is that computers are actually pretty pedantic. (laughs) So some amount of that uh, pedanticism is there because it makes a difference in how the code runs. That's true. I know that for those who are more picky on the teams, I've seen people approach this really well where they will preface every pedantic thing on a pull request with, oh, this is just a minor nit or something like that. So it kind of shows like, I'm not attacking your character for this little thing. It's just that I care about this. And, you know, it's a very nice way of saying, "Eh, it doesn't matter. But, you know, for consistency, I would feel better about this going out if you fix this one thing. Um, So I think that that is a nice way of doing it. I definitely learned that from a colleague in my previous job was saying just a minor nit, but... Right. And it just definitely stopped me being so defensive because that person was pretty much the um, the self-identified pedantic person on the team. So I appreciated that from them. Another way of hand- handling that graciously is to start with a compliment before you bring a criticism. <laughs> and it can be large or small, but it's nice to first acknowledge quality or something that's good before you s- state something that's wrong or incorrect. Whether it's a big thing or a small thing, it's just like, you know, tell people something good before before you bring in criticism and it, it really helps it be more uh speak jared better received <laughs> it helps it become better i still can't say it it's better the, the old sandwich. feedback sandwich yeah exactly so we actually have a community story about a fail that they had in production um that they would like to share um, they are Robert tables in our um, JS Party Slack. So we're actually going to have a listen to that right now. Hey, this is David Poindexter, uh, also known as Robert Tables, out on the fun interwebs. Um, I've got a fail story. This is from when I was a very, very new developer, very excited getting started on a big community open source project in higher education. Indiana University had flown me out to Maryland uh, to, to work with their development team. And I thought, uh, first thing I can do as a front-end person is do a little speed evaluation, a little performance thing. Notice that uh, Enable GZIP was recommended. Uh, and I, I'm using a Java thing, Java. And so I enabled GZIP compression for Jetty, which was the server that we used locally. Uh, pushed that through, it got approved, uh, merged into the main branch, and deployed out to our QA servers that our QA team used um, half, half the world away. And as it turns out, they were using Tomcat. Um, and I broke their build uh, for an entire day, uh, team 150 people broken for the entire day. This is David Poindexter, and that's my fail. <laughs> oh, no. Ouch. Oh. So 150 people, uh, I'm going to guess India or somewhere over there, where let's, let's estimate $20 an hour. How much did you cost? <laughs> <laughs> It's just like when it's, when it's your peers too, when you broke it for all of your colleagues, it actually feels much closer to home than 
customers, even though you are writing software at the end of the day for customers, you feel the wrath of your colleagues because they're the ones that are hitting you up directly. There is no shield in between you and, and your peers as well. And you're like, I am so sorry. I think that is one of the the really important things about the trend that I've seen recently of people sharing their failures and what we're doing today. But you know, I've seen a lot of folks on Twitter being like, hey, I've been doing this for 10 years or 20 years and I did this stupid thing and it still broke because it normalizes it. Like we're human. We all F up. This stuff happens. Uh, but especially if you're new to the industry or new to a company or, or you haven't had this stuff before, like it can be soul crushing where you think like, should I be doing this at all? And like, we all do that. And, you know, I shared my story, probably lost us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of fundraising. Um, I'm not going to calculate David's, uh, the cost of David's thing right now, but you know, that's lots of money. We all like, it happens. That's part of this business. Um, and we need to accept that. Absolutely. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think that what hits newcomers especially is they'll ask, um, you know, someone who's more senior on the team for help and they'll just look over the shoulder and point at the issue immediately. And what they think at first is that person is so smart. They saw it immediately and I'm never going to be that like that. And that's humiliating that they were able to see it. And I wasn't, and what they're not realizing is like that happens to all of us, even at the senior level, because we end up with biases about our confidence. We're like, oh yeah, this is my code. It's good code. You know, like, um, it can't possibly be this one silly typo that I did. And they don't understand how easy it is to spot something in someone else's code, looking over someone's shoulder, as opposed to looking for it in your own code. And I'm really happy that we're talking about this particular topic on this episode, because I'm particularly passionate about seniors being vulnerable and, and sharing their stories and, and also just saying that they still do it to this day, as has been mentioned previously by other panelists. Plus, the reason that I see your error so quickly is because I made it too. Right. <laughs> Seven, you know, 17 times in a row. And now I've learned better. You exactly. Know? <laughs> exactly. Like we have these pattern libraries that we've built up by beating our heads against the wall so many times. And after it happens the first time, you're like, okay, whatever. After it happens the fifth time, you start to notice it by the time it's 17 or 18 times. Like now, every time you run into a set of it, something that's not working, you check for that. It's an extremely efficient neural network in your brain going, okay, let's try these paths first. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, used to go teach classes uh, on uh, various JavaScript topics. And right before one class, I made a change to the uh, the workshop tool that I was using. And it I, I basically added in support for um, like in-browser transpilation of TypeScript so that we could run examples and see those immediately. But uh, I didn't test it against all of the like thousand of, of existing examples. I didn't test it against all 1000 of them and uh, I broke several of them. And so this was a week long workshop and every morning I was coming back in and being like, okay, I have a new zip of the, the materials you can download that fixes this and this and this. And that ended up being one of the best workshops that I taught because I took the time to explain like why it broke and we got to dive into to code and they got to see me fail quite a bit. Uh, it was totally embarrassing for me and I hated going back to the hotel every night and doing that, but it ended up being one of the best workshops I've ever taught. That is awesome. Yeah. I think that some, sometimes when people feel intimidated by you, even just being able to have it more of a collaborative experience like that makes them feel even more confident about whether or not they'll be able to learn your, your material too. So I actually think that's almost like an excellent icebreaker 
that make, makes people more emotionally invested in the course. That's really cool, but I'm sure very painful for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I could tell the one about how I left a password back door on a production uh, customers of mine for six months, but I don't know. Uh, that one's it's pretty close to home. Maybe we should just read some stories from around the community. Or do you guys want to hear that terrible <laughs> that is tale? Such, that is such a tease. And oh, everyone man. always wants to know about the password backdoor. <laughs> okay, I'll keep it really short, um, if possible. I don't want to give too many details. But longtime customer, so I'm a, I'm a contractor. I've been having, uh, doing contract development for a decade-ish. And longtime customer... Uh, old Ruby on Rails application, um, so old, uh, never heeding my advice to upgrade either Ruby or Rails, um, still on the 1.x Rails branch. And oh. uh, yes, very I'm old. Sorry. Yes. And at a point now where it's like basically a legacy maintenance mode, like keep it running, keep the bugs out. There, There's just no, it's so brittle and old that, that they just can't add features. Um, so there's going to have to be a rewrite at some point. But we did add a feature um, earlier this year and I had a new laptop. And so my development environment was broken and I had to get set back up for developing this application. Well, the Ruby version is so old, the SSL, the open SSL version that that Ruby uh, relies upon is no longer a thing, right? Like you can't even get an old download. It, I was spending all this time trying to get set back up and everything worked just fine, except I couldn't do password auth because for some reason the cryptographic functions just couldn't execute. It would psych vault every time I tried to log in to develop. And so I put a, I basically short circuited the password prompt in certain circumstances in development only. And I remember putting a little comment above that says like, (laughs) uncomment this. Before before deploying or something like that, right? Oh, so classic. Yeah. Rather, I rather than checking the actual environment, and, which actually yeah. I don't remember if it was visible, if it was easy to get to in Rails one dot whatever. It, yeah, it's not like you can't do like Rails dot m dot development question mark back then. Um, this was like you know I was kind of at my wits end trying to get the thing running so I could do what they wanted me to do, which was add a little feature. You know, so all this time spent wasted on just getting set up. That I was like, I'm just going to bypass it and then I'm going to fix it before I deploy. And those are my famous last words. And so I, I bypassed it and then I deployed it and then I fixed it like six months later when we realized that this was still live. Um, when the, the, to my credit, it's not like live completely open to the world. There was a very specific set of circumstances. It was limited to certain IP addresses. It was definitely a security hole. And, um, we finally had somebody fall upon it and realize that they could sign in with any password. And right when my customer emailed me. I was actually on vacation and I immediately, I knew immediately, you know, it was one of these things where like the memory just flushed back into my head. And I said, I just knew exactly what it was right when the email came in. And I thought, this is why I have general liability insurance for my business because (laughs) this is really bad. And this is, I don't feel like I was being negligent, but it was like an honest mistake that happened because of a terrible circumstance, but I did it and that's bad. And if, you know, if there's issues, that's on me. And I thought they were going to hate me and, and be super angry and want to sue me. And so I fixed it as fast as I could, emailed them back, apologized a hundred times. And they were just super happy that I fixed it. And they're they, they just like, thanks. Awesome. You're the best. Have a great vacation. Wow. And so I have that's great, a great customers. Ending. But yeah, yeah, that is a great customer. That's the same thing where you're like, your stomach jumps up into your throat where you're like, oh my goodness. Oh my I felt... God like the worst person alive. Like I couldn't believe that I did that. And, um, 
I was just thankful that everything worked out okay. Thanks for sharing that story. I feel like yours have been some of the scarier ones, Jared. Like <laughs> where you you've had that like moment and you're like, oh no. Oh yeah. Yeah, I guess they have been. Those are both recent as well. And like, you know, K Ball said, talking about the experience and like we all still do it. Like I've been like this has been my job for my entire career. And I made that mistake in April, March of 2018. This was not like the bad old days when I used to stink at this. Like this was very, very recent. So mistakes happen. And that's the, that's the issue with leverage. I mean, this is the concept that I, I bring up a lot and I think about a lot and the power of leverage and what we have as software developers. This is why it's kind of intimidating, right? Because, you know, think about a popular open source project, the Linux kernel, NPM, like think about something where you can write a little bit of code and substantially improve the lives of millions of people when that code gets deployed around the world. That's an amazing amount of leverage, right? Like the time spent versus the value produced is, a, is outstanding. And that's why it's so cool. On the other side, like little mistakes are also leveraged, right? And so one little mistake, yep. K-Ball can affect like an entire business's future or 150 yep. people uh, in the business. And so, yeah, it's, it's intimidating for sure. And the multiplier effect is definitely very real. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by NativeScript. NativeScript is an open source framework for building truly native mobile apps for iOS and Android using JavaScript and TypeScript with frameworks like Angular and Vue. And in this segment, I'm talking with TJ Van Toll from the NativeScript team about why people should care about NativeScript. Thanks, Adam. So I'll give you three quick reasons. First, NativeScript is just a great way to get into iOS and Android development if you're coming from a JavaScript background. You get to use a lot of the tech you might already know when you're building NativeScript apps. So you use things like CSS, NPM, Webpack, and of course, JavaScript. Second, with NativeScript, we let you build performant apps. With NativeScript, we're rendering your apps using native user interface components, so we don't use web views in any way. So your apps are really snappy, and they feel great when your users use them. And finally, in NativeScript, we support both Angular and Vue.js. So if you're already using those frameworks on the web, I think you'll find it's just a lot of fun to use a framework you already know and to create native iOS and Android apps using that same tech stack. All right, if you want to learn more about NativeScript and you like what TJ had to say about NativeScript and what it has to offer you when building mobile apps for iOS and Android, head to nativescript.org slash jsparty. Once again, nativescript.org slash jsparty. So we're going to segue from failure to perhaps something practical to maybe avoid future failures. And we're going to be talking about lessons and advice from yourself. And we have done this in previous episodes, but this time we wanted to focus on something slightly different. So instead of saying, if you could give advice to your past self, you know, going back in time when you were first starting out, this time we want the panelists to imagine that they're getting started today in the world of development, in the world of JavaScript development specifically, you know, given that things might've changed since, you know, you first got into things and things have kind of moved along and are very different these days, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Like, would you do things differently if you were learning JavaScript, um, you know, this week instead of X amount of years ago? Um, and so I can go first just to kind of set um, 
kind of to set everything up. I would probably tell myself and I just for the um, just for background, I first started professionally developing about 13 years ago. And then I started learning JavaScript properly <laughs> after that uh, Redux <laughs> incident in 2011. So I haven't actually been doing JavaScript as long as other people have, um, but it has been a good seven years now, I guess. Um, and so the things that I would tell to somebody or myself if I was starting right now um, would be college is now too expensive, in my opinion. Um, I definitely know that it was more affordable to myself when I was living in Australia at the time. But learning some of the things that you would normally learn in college, I think are useful for being able to understand some of the really complex stacks that you set up for yourself these days with JavaScript and single page applications, things like that. I think that our responsibilities as a front end developer have gotten a lot more complex. And it was definitely not like that when I was first starting out. And so I had the advantage of already being in the professional industry and being able to sort of quickly ramp up and learn from colleagues um, with already some kind of background knowledge. And so I would recommend learning data structures and algorithms, as boring as that sounds. But I think that once you've learned some of them, especially uh, as you're learning JavaScript, you're going to see some of those overlaps in um, different things that you're setting up, such as in Redux, if you're using React or being able to figure out, okay, I have to process this piece of um, data lots and lots of times, like what's going to not clog up the UI thread and things like that. And I think that data structures and algorithms can offer you a lot of kind of insights into starting to instinctually write performant things or starting to instinctually understand maybe how some of the popular libraries you use work under the surface. And I've found that since filling in those gaps um, for me personally, I've actually been able to just faster identify things and, and it almost feels like you start getting a sixth sense. So that's something that I would recommend, even though it sounds super boring, um, I found it super, super helpful. And also just learn how to comfortably pair program with mentors because when you're first starting out, you want to be able to see the kind of challenges people run into every day and how they solve those problems. And if you're lacking that experience at first, it can be really, really helpful to watch how other people solve problems. And I think that I was too nervous to do that when I was first learning JavaScript. And I think that these days, because of how many different things you have to learn, I think it's better to fast sort of forward your, your learning by not just doing things by yourself. So definitely trying to find people to teach you things would also be my advice. Good stuff. Now, I'm not sure what I'm going to say now, Suze. You got all, got all the good ones. <laughs> no, I did. I did want to say more, but I left it off. So <laughs> there are other stuff there that you can, that you can do. Sorry. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. And, and I would agree with, uh, all of yours. Actually, I did go to college for this and it, um, I, I feel like I learned how to, to learn on my own a little bit on on it, but it's not something that I couldn't have done outside of college. Uh, but going into a real job, I totally didn't I, like nothing from college really carried over to that. So uh, I, I would agree with that. Um, for mine specifically with JavaScript uh, and learning it today, uh, I I think that you should start with ES 2015 syntax and go from there. There's a lot of syntactic sugar, and it is very important to know what uh, is happening. Um, with, with that, like what it's covering up, but I don't think that it's immediately important for you to do that. Like, for example, you can use classes today, use the class syntax without having to 
understand everything about prototypes, but definitely learn that later. Um, but getting, getting up to speed with that, you don't really have to go backwards and start with like ES5 and, and going on from there. Um, and don't worry about builds yet. Don't get into the mess of configuring Webpack or, or thinking about that. Uh, just look at, at the code. And I know that that can be tricky because finding code that can run without needing a build step can be difficult. Um, but stick with the fundamentals of the language before going into uh, a framework or going into code that, that absolutely needs to be built. You know what's so interesting about that advice is that back in the day, um, we were saying that about like, you should learn the difference between what jQuery is doing and what just native JavaScript is doing. And would you mm -hmm. say that that is a similar parallel these days with things like Webpack, but also like JavaScript frameworks and stuff, just like staying with ES 2015 so that you can recognize the other abstractions? I think so. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult to like, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of how I would handle this if I was trying to get into this and going through all of this and being like, oh, well, this is JavaScript. Well, why doesn't it run here? Or why doesn't it run in Node? Uh, what's this Webpack thing? Like, I think that, that it, it's good to learn all of that, but I, I'm still wondering about like navigating that and knowing what can be like, if something fails, why did it fail? Well, probably maybe it's because it it's not supported in the the browser or the version of Node that you're trying to run it in, um, and, and being able to quickly understand that. I think that we're we're kind of in a bind with that kind of um, understanding for for new people right now coming in. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? So I think one thing to be a little cautious of, and this is something that I fall my find myself falling into as well. Um, it's really easy once you've got a lot of like you can do a lot of things to say, gosh, go back and focus on the fundamentals and build it up. But if you start from just the fundamentals, a lot of times, like it feels like forever until you get to something interesting. And one of the most important things I think to sustaining learning is being excited about what you're able to do uh, and sort of maintaining that excitement and energy. So I think uh, I would actually almost say start with one of these frameworks, but start with one where you get batteries included, where you can get to something that's really cool really quickly, but then dive into the fundamentals of each piece of that. So you start with something that lets you get to something really neat and interesting, but don't stop there. Don't stop and say, okay, I've got, you know, view and it gives me everything out of the box. So all I care about is view. You say, okay, I've got view. It gave me everything I cared about. Now let's dive into one piece of that. How does the router work? What if I change that around? Or let's dive into like, what the heck is actually going on when we're setting up these objects and the callbacks and all these various other things. As somebody who didn't uh, major in CS because the first CS class I took bored the hell out of me, I, I think it's really important that we don't uh, sort of take our experts view and say, gosh, I'd wish I'd worked on fundamentals, but instead look back to like, when I'm just starting in this, I want something that's actually going to be really cool right away. That's going to show me like the power of, of what's possible here. I think someone who does a really good job of teaching JavaScript fundamentals, but also trying to keep it fun is Wes Boss. He has his JavaScript 30 series. And I think that you build these things that give you that instant gratification, but you are actually kind of learning the, the language itself. And I think that that is probably a really good mix to have. That can be very difficult to find on your own, but I think that's a really good point, Cable. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's a, that's also a good thing, like if, or a good point that, uh, like in a lot of those, the development environment is already kind of set up for you. And so I guess if you can abstract away from that and not have to think about that too much, then that's not not too big of a deal. And and I know that with like tools like Create React App and others, that, that makes it really easy to to at least get started. Yeah, I think 
you know, I, I learned about web development. I'd done other stuff, but I learned about web development from Ruby on Rails. And I started with Rails and then moved back into like, oh, wait, how does this Ruby stuff actually work? Where Which parts of this are Rails and which parts of this are Ruby? Um, but the thing I really appreciated about that is that they gave you everything, but then they also worked really hard on making things swappable. So you, you could you know, start with this full stack experience, but then if you really wanted to to change something out, really understand it, really optimize it, you could go down and do that. I think, you know, things like Create React, React App, things like the view templates um, that they have, like these sorts of things are way better for beginners to start from, where you have something that's going to work so long as you can then, you know, as you advance your knowledge, focus on different pieces and swap those things out. Because if it takes forever to get to something working, most people will bail. I would definitely echo that, K-Ball. And I think when we did the first lessons to your, your advice to yourself, um, that was definitely my advice was get a real project. So I would just add my amen to your statement there. I, for me personally, that's what pushed me over the edge was having something that I wanted to see exist and learning enough to get that into the world and then kind of rinse and repeating. Sometimes that was my own project. Sometimes it was client work, but um, it really aids in learning because you kind of have to learn. <laughs> you don't really have a choice. Like this, I need this thing to exist. So that's, I think it's powerful. Um, so I definitely would echo that. I also uh, am in agreement with pretty much everything y'all have been saying. I will point to a very specific resource that I would probably point myself to today, which didn't exist back when I was learning this, which is Free Code Camp. And Free Code Camp has thousands of projects and a huge curriculum. It's all free. It's all in one place. And they have uh, like a trail map. So if you're brand new to coding, they recommend you start at the beginning, but they will have, uh, they even have certifications for certain things, which, you know, anybody can make up certification, but this is pretty intensive training. The responsive web design certification requires at least 300 hours of effort. And so it's not um, something to balk at. But they have uh, the fundamentals from HTML, CSS, and so on, all the way up to front-end libraries, data visualization. There's just a huge catalog. And they walk you through uh, from zero, really, to functional, which I think is really powerful. So it's free. It's all in one place. And if you don't have a project that you, uh, that you want to see exist, but you still want to learn, uh, I agree with Suze that West Boss has great resources as well. Free Code Camp is definitely another one to check out. I want to jump in on that project though like find a project seriously because yeah. if you just go through tutorials and courses you will uh find yourself bounded by the ways that the people who created those tutorials and courses are thinking about things whereas if you have a project it pushes you into the edge conditions and you're going to have to jump across and interpolate and put things together um but you don't have to have a perfect project right like pick something uh don't wait for something perfect if you, I, a metaphor I always use is you can't steer a boat that isn't moving. Like if, if try something, start moving forward. And if it turns out that that project is crap, uh, pick a different project, but at least you got partway along and you were learning as you went. You know, if you're, if you're just doing tutorials and courses, you're going to really struggle when you start to hit real stuff, because there will be something that you thought you got, but it only worked because it was exactly the way the tutorial person had set it up. I definitely agree with that advice. I think the first project that I did because I was personally interested in it was um, what made me fundamentally really understand some parts of JavaScript that I hadn't formally really got. 
And, you know, there was a bunch of stuff that I would copy because experts were doing it, but I didn't really feel it in my bones as to like why that was set up that way. And the secret for me was picking something that I was really excited about as the subject material of the project, because I was not so excited about learning JavaScript, (laughs) if that makes sense. And so I picked something hardware related and I was like, data sheets and like screens and pixels and things and like having to figure out how to send that to the device like that they were exciting problems I wanted to solve and I just decided to try and solve those problems specifically in the language I was trying to get better at and so my first node.js library was you know doing a hardware thing because that's something that I was way more excited about and JavaScript was just the side effect of well maybe other people will find some use in it and that library ended up helping me find like my next job um, that I actually really enjoyed doing because it was a way for me to show, well, I understand certain concepts. And so that's what helped me sort of get through that first interview filter, if that makes sense. So I'm still very um, affectionate about that library and it still is up there on NPM because it has a lot of things now that even now I look at it and I know that, oh, I've learned even more since then. So I would approach this project in a super different way. And so I think that having a topic area that doesn't have to be just about learning the JavaScript can really motivate you to keep with the project. Well, since we're we're pausing there, let me jump in with another uh, couple of recommendations. Um, one would be, you know, pick one area or one framework or something and go deep on it. Um, I think I early on sort of jumped around a lot. And I know that I see a lot of folks who are like, there's so much, how do I pick? What am I going to do? Like I got to learn Vue and React and Angular and this and that and all these things. And you will get so much farther if you pick one of those and go deep. And the thing that that is not always visible when you're getting started is how much getting that deep understanding will actually help you learn those other things later. So like if you go and you really deeply understand Vue or you really deeply understand, uh, let's let's start with Vue, then when you go to pick up React sometime later, you're going to learn it so much faster than if you had tried to do those both at the same time just at a beginner level. Can't you get stuck on the pick one? Like that, a lot of people, the questions that you see around are like, which one should I pick? And it's like, well, you're not, you just get started, you know? Like, what do you tell people yeah, you, in that situation? You can't steer a boat. You can't steer a boat <laughs> unless it's moving. Right. Um, but like there's I the actually, paradox of choice. There's a lot of choices. Like right. they're, you know, they're comparable. A lot of seems really good. There's hype. There's this and that. And it's like, oh, what do I do? Like you don't want to pick the wrong thing. Yeah. And then like you've gone really deep on something that's irrelevant in, in a year. And so that's, I think, the paradox or the what gets a lot of people stuck. Yeah. So what do you say to that question? So I, I was trying to think about that. And I actually, I wrote up a, like kind of how I decide things um, and try to like codify it a little bit. So I created this little framework for myself um, that I, I blogged about called the three Mo's, uh, which are uh, money, motivation, and uh, momentum. And so when I'm trying to decide what to learn, I'll sort of try to evaluate it in those lenses. So like money is, you know, is there somebody who's literally going to pay me if I know this thing or pay me to learn it? Um, a lot of times as a contractor, you can get you know a job where Maybe you're you're focused on one piece, but they have another part of their system, and if you learn that, you have more work, right? Like that's a very promising way to do it. If you don't have, if you're not a contractor, you're just getting into the industry. Uh, maybe it's you know looking real quick and saying, where are the most jobs in this? Where are people actually hiring people with this? Like right now, if you're looking at front end stuff, there's so many React jobs that I would 
you know, money would point to react if you don't have anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other two pieces are, uh, momentum. You know, what is learning this going to set me up for? Um, so for example, if you are just getting into the industry and you're trying to decide, you know, should I learn, and maybe you're starting on the server side, you're like, should I learn Ruby or should I learn node? Um, if you're also interested in front end, that would actually lead you towards doing node because it sets you up better for learning stuff on the front end than Ruby, which is going to be somewhat different. Um, so like evaluating things like, what does this set me up for? Um, and if you don't know that, like that's an easy thing that you can ask folks like, Hey, I'm trying to go here, but I'm, I'm here right now. Like what's going to help set me up in that direction? Or is this or more, that's an easy question to ask. And then the last one, uh, was motivation like is this something that's particularly exciting to me like a lot of people right now are particularly excited about Vue for whatever reason um so kind of looking at things in that framework and using that to help guide what i what i learn uh, is kind of what i recommend that's really good advice i thought you were just gonna name a framework and we would be done but that's really good advice <laughs> i don't think it's ever as simple as naming a framework <laughs> well, see actually he did name a framework but it's his own framework called the three mo's now i gotta go learn the three mo's Come on, K-Ball, this is too hard. I know, right? I wanted to thank everyone for sharing all of their stories today. A special shout out to Robert Tables, David Point, Dexter for calling in and sharing his. I know that takes a lot of guts, so we definitely very much appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening to JS Party. We hope that you've enjoyed it as much as we did producing it, and we will catch you next time. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.